Welcome to From Cork With Love Adventure with your host, Paul Omani. Paul the Poet Omani. The number of people in Cork who have heard of Rilke is minuscule. And the number of people in Cork who have read Rilke probably could be easily counted. Now, I can't prove this to you. For all I know, every student who's gone through University College Cork studying German has read poetry by Rilke. For all I know, everybody who's gone through history studying the history of Austria has read the letters of Rilke. And perhaps students of other students of literature have read his one and only novel. I certainly don't, can't think of a way of finding out. But I came to live in Cork in 2005 and I haven't read Rilke properly until 2019. So I'm going to read you letters by Rilke, which he wrote when he was in his late 20s. He sent them to a student he never ever met, because the student who was aged 19 sent him a batch of poems and asked him to give him his views on it. At the time when Rilke was becoming more and more praised as a wonderful poet, I heard of Rilke ages ago, and the phrase that lodged itself in my mind is, there's only one way through but through, and I don't know if that's accurate or not, but the image I had in my head was that you're faced with a big, solid stone, block of stone, and Rilke is the kind of guy who would say, there's only one way through that stone. There's only one way forward, and it's right through it. You have to suffer the difficulty of pushing your way onwards when it looks impossible. Now, I, on the other hand, would be always faced with that kind of an obstacle looking for way round or over or under the huge block of stone. You may know Rilke already. If you do, it's going to be wonderful because the five letters that I'm playing in this episode will be a bit familiar to you, perhaps, and this will be a reminder. The themes of the letters... Well, it's about poetry on the one hand, uh, how to write it, how to appreciate it, what a poet needs to do in order to prepare to be able to write poetry. It's also about how you deal with criticism, what you do, what happens when other people say things about your poetry. Who do you, who, who's the best judge of the quality of your poetry? Who's the best judge of the quality of your writing? And indeed, the answers that Rilke gives in relation to this young poet may interest those of you who have never ever written a piece of poetry ever in your life and may well be doing some other form of artistic work. So here are the five first letters that Rilke wrote to the young poet. And I hope you will be able to make them meaningful to you in some way. Here. Paul Omani 
reading Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke. Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, was born in Prague in 1875, the 4th of December, the same date as my brother was born. He was a poet, a thinker about the life of an artist, and he wrote an awful lot of letters, and he wrote one novel. One of the things he did, which was published after he died, was write a series of letters called Letters to a Young Poet. And I, my intention is to read these letters, to share them, and to dwell on them myself. Here's the first letter. Paris, February the 17th, 1903. Dear Sir, your letter arrived just a few days ago. I want to thank you for the great confidence you have placed in me. That is all I can do. I cannot discuss your verses, for any attempt at criticism would be foreign to me. Nothing touches a work of art so little as words of criticism. They always result in more or less fortunate misunderstandings. Things aren't all so tangible and sayable as people would usually have us believe. Most experiences are unsayable. They happen in a space that no word has ever entered and more unsayable than all other things are works of art. Those mysterious existences whose life endures beside our own small transitory life. With this note as a preface, may I just tell you that your verses have no style of their own, although they do have silent and hidden beginnings of something personal. I feel this most clearly in the last poem, My Soul. There something of your own is trying to become word and melody. And in the lovely poem to Leopardi, a kind of kinship with that great solitary figure does perhaps appear. Nevertheless, the poems are not yet anything in themselves, not yet anything independent. Even the last one and the one to Leopardi. Your kind letter which accompanied them, managed to make clear to me various faults that I felt in reading your verses, though I am not able to name them specifically. You ask whether your verses are any good. You ask me. You have asked others before this. You send them to magazines, you compare them with other poems, and you are upset when certain editors reject your work. Now, since you have said you want my advice, I beg you to stop doing that sort of thing. You are looking outside, and that is what you should most avoid right now. No one can advise or help you. No one. There is only one thing you should do. Go into yourself. Find out the reason that commands you to write. See whether it has spread its roots into the very depths of your heart. Confess to yourself whether you would have to die if you were forbidden to write. This most of all, ask yourself in the most silent hour of your night, 
must I write? Dig into yourself for a deep answer. And if this answer rings out in assent, if you meet this solemn question with a strong, simple, I must, then build your life in accordance with this necessity. Your whole life, even into its humblest and most indifferent hour, must become a sign and witness to this impulse. Then come close to nature. Then, as if no one had ever tried before, try to say what you see and feel and love and lose. Don't write love poems. Avoid those forms that are too facile and ordinary. They are the hardest to work with, and it takes a great, fully ripened power to create something individual, where good, even glorious, traditions exist in abundance. So rescue yourself from these general themes and write about what your everyday life offers you. Describe your sorrows and desires, the thoughts that pass through your mind and your belief in some kind of beauty. Describe all these with heartfelt, silent, humble sincerity. And when you express yourself, use the things around you, the images from your dreams, the objects that you remember. If your everyday life seems poor, don't blame it. Blame yourself. Admit to yourself that you are not enough of a poem to call forth its riches. Because for the Creator there is no poverty and no poor indifferent place. And even if you found yourself in some prison whose walls let in none of the world's sound, wouldn't you still have your childhood, that jewel beyond all price, that treasure house of memories? Turn your attention to it. Try to raise up the sunken feelings of this enormous past. Your personality will grow stronger. Your solitude will expand and become a place where you can live in the twilight. Where the noise of other people passes by far in the distance. And if out of this turning within, out of this immersion in your own world, poems come then you will not think of asking anyone whether they are good or not. Nor will you try to interest magazines in these works, for you will see them as your dear natural possession, a piece of your life, a voice from it. A work of art is good if it has arisen out of necessity. That is the only way one can judge it. So, dear sir, I can't give you any advice but this. Go into yourself and see how deep the place is from which your life flows. At its source you will find the answer to the question of whether you must create. Accept that answer just as it is given to you, without trying to interpret it. Perhaps you will discover that you are called to be an artist. Then take that destiny upon yourself and bear it, its burden and its greatness, without ever asking what reward might come from outside. For the Creator must be a world for himself and must find everything in himself and in nature to whom his whole life is devoted. There's more to come. But after this descent into yourself and into your solitude, 
Perhaps you will have to renounce becoming a poet. If, as I have said, one feels one could live without writing, then one shouldn't write at all. Nevertheless, even then, this self-searching that I ask of you will not have been for nothing. Your life will still find its own paths from there, and that they may be good, rich and wide is what I wish for you more than I can say. What else can I tell you? It seems to me that everything has its proper emphasis. And finally, I want to add just one more bit of advice. To keep growing silently and earnestly through your whole development, you couldn't disturb it any more violently than by looking outside and waiting for outside answers to questions that only your innermost feeling in your quietest hour can perhaps answer. It was a pleasure for me to find in your letter the name of Professor Horacek. I have great reverence for that kind, learned man and a gratitude that has lasted through the years. Will you please tell him how I feel? It is very good of him to still think of me and I appreciate it. The poem that you entrusted me with, I am sending back to you and I thank you once more for your questions and sincere trust of which, by answering as honestly as I can, I have tried to make myself a little worthier than I, as a stranger, really am. Yours very truly, Rainer Maria Rilke. The interest which Victorious One and Spirit Dancer both expressed and wrote about in letters to a young poet have motivated me to carry on sharing these 10 letters of Rilke. Here's a bit of an introduction to Rilke, followed by letter number two. Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, was born in Prague in 1875, the 4th of December, the same date as my brother was born. He was a poet, a thinker about the life of an artist and he wrote an awful lot of letters and he wrote one novel. One of the things he did, which was published after he died, was write a series of letters called Letters to a Young Poet and I, my intention is to read these letters, to share them and to dwell on them myself. Via Reggio near Pisa, Italy, April the 5th, 1903. You must pardon me, dear sir, for waiting until today to gratefully remember your letter of February the 24th. I have been unwell all this time, not really sick, but oppressed by an influenza-like debility, which has made me incapable of doing anything. And finally, since it didn't want to improve, I came to this southern sea whose beneficence helped me once before, but I am still not well. Writing is difficult, and so you must accept these few lines instead of the letter I would have liked to send. Of course you must know that every letter of yours will always give me pleasure, and you must be indulgent with the answer, which will perhaps often leave you empty-handed, for ultimately... And precisely in the deepest and most important matters, we are unspeakably alone. 
And many things must happen. Many things must go right. A whole constellation of events must be fulfilled for one human being to successfully advise or help another. Today, I would like to tell you just two more things. Irony. Don't let yourself be controlled by it, especially during uncreative moments. When you are fully creative, try to use it as one more way to take hold of life. Used purely, it too is pure and wouldn't even be ashamed of it. But if you feel yourself becoming too familiar with it, if you are afraid of this growing familiarity, then turn to great and serious objects in front of which it becomes small and helpless. Search into the depths of things. There, irony never descends. And when you arrive at the edge of greatness, find out whether this way of perceiving the world arises from a necessity of your being. For under the influence of serious things, it will either fall away from you, if it is something accidental, or else, if it is really innate and belongs to you, it will grow strong and become a serious tool and take its place among the instruments which you can form your art with. And the second thing I want to tell you today is this. Of all my books, I find only a few indispensable, and two of them are always with me wherever I am. They are here by my side. The Bible and the books of the great Danish poet Jens Peter Jakobsen. Do you know his works? It is easy to find them since some have been published in Recalm's Universal Library in a very good translation. Get the little volume of six stories by J.P. Jakobsen and his novel Niels Lina and begin with the first story in the former, which is called Mogens. A whole world will envelop you. The happiness, the abundance, the inconceivable vastness of a world. Live for a while in these books. Learn from them what you feel is worth learning. But most of all, love them. This love will be returned to you thousands upon thousands of times, whatever your life may become. It will, I am sure, go through the whole fabric of your being as one of the most important threads among all the threads of your experiences, disappointments and joys. If I were to say who has given me the greatest experience of the essence of creativity, its depths and eternity, there are just two names I would mention. Jakobsen, that great, great poet, and Auguste Rodin, the sculptor, who is without peer among all artists who are alive today. And all success upon your path. Yours, Rainer Maria Rilke. I'd like to read you a letter. This is the third of ten letters which Rilke wrote to a young poet. The letters are particularly interesting because they were written at the time when Rilke was working out his own ideas about creativity and criticism, and he has a number of pretty interesting things to say to somebody who wants to become an artist. Via Reggio, near Pisa, Italy, April the 23rd, 1903. 
You give me much pleasure, dear sir, with your Easter letter, for it brought much good news of you, and the way you spoke about Jacobson's great and beloved art showed me that I was not wrong to guide your life and its many questions to this abundance. Now, Niels Lina will open to you a book of splendors and depths. The more often one reads it, the more everything seems to be contained within it, from life's most imperceptible fragrances to the full enormous taste of its heaviest fruits. In it there is nothing that does not seem to have been understood, held, lived and known in memory's wavering echo. No experience has been too unimportant and the smallest event unfolds like a fate and fate itself is like a wonderful wide fabric in which every thread is guided by an infinitely tender hand and laid alongside another thread and is held and supported by a hundred others. You will experience the great happiness of reading this book for the first time and will move through its numberless surprises as if you were in a new dream. And I can tell you that even later on, one moves through these books again and again with the same astonishment and that they lose none of their wonderful power and relinquish none of the overwhelming enchantment that they had the first time one read them. One just comes to enjoy them more and more, becomes more and more grateful and somehow better and simpler in one's vision, deeper in one's faith in life, happier and greater in the way one lives. And later on you will have to read the wonderful book of the fate and yearning of Marie Grubba and Jacobson's letters and journals and fragments and finally his verses which, even if they are just moderately well translated, live in infinite sound. For this reason I would advise you to buy, when you can, the lovely, complete edition of Jacobson's works, which contain all of these. It is in three volumes, well translated, published by Eugen Dieterix in Leipzig, and costs, I think, only five or six marks per volume. In your opinion of Roses Should Have Been Here, that work of such incomparable delicacy and form, you are, of course, quite, quite incontestably right, as against the man who wrote the introduction. But let me make this request right away. Read as little as possible of literary criticism. Such things are either partisan opinions which have become petrified and meaningless, hardened and empty of life, or else they are clever word games in which one view wins and tomorrow the opposite view. Works of art are of an infinite solitude and no means of approach is so useless as criticism. Only love can touch and hold them and be fair to them. Always trust yourself and your own feeling as opposed to argumentation, discussion 
are introductions of that sort. If it turns out that you are wrong, then the natural growth of your inner life will eventually guide you to other insights. Allow your judgments, their own silent, undisturbed development, which, like all progress, must come from deep within and cannot be forced or hastened. Everything is gestation and then birthing. To let each impression and each embryo of a feeling come to completion entirely in itself, in the dark, in the unsayable, the unconscious, beyond the reach of one's own understanding, and with deep humility and patience to wait for the hour when a new clarity is born. This alone is what it means to live as an artist, in understanding as in creating. In this, there is no measuring with time. A year doesn't matter, and ten years are nothing. Being an artist means not numbering and counting, but ripening like a tree, which doesn't force its sap and stands confidently in the storms of spring, not afraid that afterward summer may not come. It does come, but it comes only to those who are patient, who are there as if eternity lay upon them so unconcernedly silent and vast. I learn of it every day of my life, learn it with pain I am grateful for. Patience is everything. Richard Demel. My experience with his books, and also incidentally with the man whom I know slightly, is that whenever I have discovered one of his beautiful pages, I am always afraid that the next one will destroy the whole effect and change what is admirable into something unworthy. You have characterized him quite well with the phrase, living and writing in heat. And in fact, the artist's experience lies so unbelievably close to the sexual, to its pain and its pleasure, that the two phenomena are really just different forms of one and the same longing and bliss. If instead of heat, one could say sex, sex in the great pure sense of the word, free of any sin attached to it by the church, then his art would be very great and infinitely important. His poetic power is great and as strong as a primal instinct. It has its own relentless rhythms in itself and explodes from him like a volcano. But this power does not always seem completely straightforward and without pose. But that is one of the most difficult tests for the creator. He must always remain unconscious, unaware of his best virtues, if he doesn't want to rob them of their candor and innocence. And then, when thundering through his being, it arrives at the sexual, it finds someone who is not so pure as it needs him to be. Instead of a completely ripe and pure world of sexuality, it finds a world that is not human enough, that is only male, is heat, 
thunder and relentlessness and burdened with the old prejudice and arrogance with which the male has always disfigured and burdened love because he loves only as a male and not as a human being there is something narrow in his sexual feeling something that seems wild malicious time-bound uneternal which diminishes his art and makes it ambiguous and doubtful it is not immaculate it is marked by time and by passion and little of it will endure but most art is like that even so one can deeply enjoy what is great in it only one must not get lost in it and become a hanger-on of Damel's world which is so infinitely afraid filled with adultery and confusion and is far from the real fates which make one suffer more than these time-bound afflictions do but also give one more opportunity for greatness and more courage for eternity. Finally, as to my own books, I wish I could send you any of them that might give you pleasure, but I am very poor and my books, as soon as they are published, no longer belong to me. I can't even afford them myself and as I would so often like to give them to those who would be kind to them. So I'm writing to you on another slip of paper the titles and publishers of my most recent books, the newest ones. Altogether I published perhaps 12 or 13 and must leave to you, dear sir, to order one or two of them when you can. I'm glad that my books will be in your hands. With best wishes, yours, Rainer Maria Rilke. Welcome back to Rilke. This is the fourth letter which Rilke wrote to a young poet. I think the young poet was 19 years old and Rilke was probably no more than about 27. This with the other uh, five, six letters were published after Rilke's death by... uh, Mr. Kapus, the student. So here's what Rilke had to say in 1903. About, I suppose you'd say about anxiety, about bodily delight, sex, (laughs) a new job, and loving life. Although the letter is much more interesting than that. Enjoy. Vorpsfeda, near Bremen, July the 16th, 1903. About ten days ago I left Paris, tired and quite sick, and travelled to this great northern plain, whose vastness and silence and sky ought to make me feel well again. But I arrived during a long period of rain. This is the first day it has begun to let up, over the restlessly blowing landscape, and I am taking advantage of this moment of brightness to greet you, dear sir.
My dear Mr. Kapus, I have left a letter from you unanswered for a long time, not because I had forgotten it. On the contrary, it is the kind that one reads again when one finds it among other letters, and I recognize you in it as if you were very near. It is your letter of May the 2nd, and I am sure you remember it. As I read it now in the great silence of these distances, I am touched by your beautiful anxiety about life, even more than when I was in Paris, where everything echoes and fades away differently because of the excessive noise that makes things tremble. Here, where I am surrounded by an enormous landscape, which the winds can move across as if they came from the seas, Here I feel that there is no one anywhere who can answer for you those questions and feelings which in their depths have a life of their own. For even the most articulate people are unable to help, since what words point to is so very delicate, is almost unsayable. But even so, I think that you will not have to remain without a solution if you trust in things that are like the ones my eyes are now resting upon. If you trust in nature, in what is simple in nature, in the small things that hardly anyone sees, and that can so suddenly become huge, immeasurable. If you have this love for what is humble, and try very simply, as someone who serves, to win the confidence of what seems poor, then everything will become easier for you, more coherent and somehow more reconciling, not in your conscious mind, perhaps, which stays behind, astonished, but in your innermost awareness, awakeness and knowledge. You are so young, so much before all beginning, and I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday, far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. Perhaps you do carry within you the possibility of creating and forming as an especially blessed and pure way of living. Train yourself for that, but take whatever comes with great trust And as long as it comes out of your will, out of some need of your innermost self, then take it upon yourself and don't hate anything. Sex is difficult, yes, but those tasks that have been entrusted to us are difficult. Almost everything serious is difficult and everything is serious. If you just recognize this and manage out of yourself, out of your own talent and nature out of your own experience and childhood and strength 
to achieve a wholly individual relation to sex, one that is not influenced by convention and custom, then you will no longer have to be afraid of losing yourself and becoming unworthy of your dearest possessions. Bodily delight is a sensory experience, not any different from pure looking or the pure feeling with which a beautiful fruit fills the tongue. It is a great and infinite learning that is given to us, a knowledge of the world, the fullness and the splendor of all knowledge. And it is not our acceptance of it that is bad. What is bad is that most people misuse this learning and squander it and apply it as a stimulant to the tired places of their lives and as a distraction rather than as a way of gathering themselves for their highest moments. People have even made eating into something else. Necessity on the one hand, excess on the other, have muddied the clarity of this need and all the deep, simple needs in which life renews itself have become just as muddy. But the individual can make them clear for himself and live them clearly, not the individual who's dependent, but the solitary man. He can remember that all beauty in animals and plants is a silent, enduring form of love and yearning. And he can see the animal as he sees plants, patiently and willingly, uniting and multiplying and growing, not out of physical pleasure, not out of physical pain, but bowing to necessities that are greater than pleasure and pain and more powerful than will and understanding. If only human beings could more humbly receive this mystery which the world is filled with, even in its smallest things, could bear it, endure it, more solemnly, feel how terribly heavy it is, instead of taking it lightly. If only they could be more reverent toward their own fruitfulness, which is essentially one, whether it is manifested as mental or physical, for mental creation too arises from the physical, is of one nature with it, and only like a softer, more enraptured and more eternal repetition of bodily delight. Quote, the thought of being a creator, of engendering, of shaping, end quote, is nothing without its continuous great confirmation and embodiment in the world. Nothing without the thousandfold ascent from things and animals. And our enjoyment of it is so indescribably beautiful and rich only because it is full of inherited memories of the engendering and birthing of millions. In one creative thought, a thousand forgotten nights of love come to life again and fill it with majesty and exaltation. And those who come together in the nights and are entwined in rocking delight perform a solemn task and gather sweetness, depth and strength for the song of some future poet 
who will appear in order to say ecstasies that are unsayable. And they call forth the future. And even if they have made a mistake and embrace blindly, the future comes anyway. A new human being arises. And on the foundation of the accident that seems to be accomplished here, there awakens the law by which a strong, determined seed forces its way through to the egg cell that openly advances to meet it. Don't be confused by surfaces. In the depth, everything becomes law. And those who live the mystery falsely and badly, and they are very many, lose it only for themselves, and nevertheless pass it on like a sealed letter without knowing it. And don't be puzzled by how many names there are and how complex each life seems. Perhaps above them all, there is a great motherhood in the form of a communal yearning. The beauty of the girl, a being who, as you beautifully say, has not yet achieved anything. Is motherhood, that has a presentiment of itself and begins to prepare, becomes anxious, yearns, And the mother's beauty is motherhood that serves. And in the old woman there is a great remembering. And in the man, too, there is motherhood, it seems to me, physical and mental. His engendering is also a kind of birthing. And it is birthing when he creates out of his innermost fullness. And perhaps the sexes are more akin than people think. And the great renewal of the world will perhaps consist in one phenomenon. That man and woman, freed from all mistaken feelings and aversions, will seek each other not as opposites, but as brother and sister, as neighbours, and will reunite as human beings in order to bear in common, simply, earnestly and patiently, the heavy sex that has been laid upon them. But everything that may someday be possible for many people, the solitary man can now already prepare and build with his own hands, which make fewer mistakes. Therefore, dear sir, love your solitude and try to sing out with the pain it causes you. For those who are near you are far away, you write. And this shows that the space around you is beginning to grow vast. And if what is near you is far away, then your vastness is already among the stars and is very great. Be happy about your growth, in which of course you can't take anyone with you. And be gentle with those who stay behind. Be confident and calm in front of them. And don't torment them with your doubts and don't frighten them with your faith or joy which they wouldn't be able to comprehend. Seek out some simple and true feeling of what you have in common with them which doesn't necessarily have to alter when you yourself change again and again. When you see them, love life in a form that is not your own and be indulgent towards those who are growing old, who are afraid of the aloneness that you trust. Avoid providing material for the drama 
that is always stretched tight between parent and children. It uses up much of the children's strength and wastes the love of the elders, which acts and warms even if it doesn't comprehend. Don't ask for any advice from them and don't expect any understanding, but believe in a love that is being stored up for you like an inheritance and have faith that in this love there is a strength and a blessing so large that you can travel as far as you wish without having to step outside it. It is good that you will soon be entering a profession that will make you independent and will put you completely on your own in every sense. Wait patiently to see whether your innermost life feels hemmed in by the form this profession imposes. I myself consider it a very difficult and very exacting one, since it is burdened with enormous conventions and leaves very little room for a personal interpretation of its duties. But your solitude will be a support and a home for you, even in the midst of very unfamiliar circumstances, and from it you will find all your paths. All my good wishes are ready to accompany you, and my faith is with you. Yours, Rainer Maria Rilke. This is the fifth letter that Rilke wrote to a young poet. He wrote it from Rome on October the 29th, 1903. Dear Sir, I received your letter of August the 29th in Florence and it has taken me this long two months to answer. Please forgive this tardiness, but I don't like to write letters while I am traveling because for letter writing, I need more than the most necessary tools, some silence and solitude and a not too unfamiliar hour. We arrived in Rome about six weeks ago at a time when it was still the empty, the hot, the notoriously feverish Rome. And this circumstance, along with other practical difficulties in finding a place to live, helped make the restlessness around us seem as if it would never end. And the unfamiliarity lay upon us with the weight of homelessness. In addition, Rome, if one has not yet become acquainted with it, makes one feel stifled with sadness for the first few days through the gloomy and lifeless museum atmosphere that it exhales, through the abundance of its pasts which are brought forth and laboriously held up, pasts in which a tiny present subsists, through the terrible overvaluing sustained by scholars and philologists and imitated by the ordinary tourist in Italy, of all these disfigured and decaying things, which, after all, are essentially nothing more than accidental remains from another time and from a life that is not and should not be ours. Finally, after weeks of daily resistance, one finds oneself somewhat composed again, even though still a bit confused, and one says to oneself, No, there is not more beauty here than in other places. And all these objects, 
which have been marvelled at by generation after generation, mended and restored by the hands of workmen, mean nothing, are nothing, and have no heart and no value. But there is much beauty here, because everywhere there is much beauty. Waters infinitely full of life move along the ancient aqueducts into the great city and dance in the many city squares over white basins of stone and spread out in large spacious pools and murmur by day and lift up their murmuring to the night, which is vast here and starry and soft with winds. And there are gardens here unforgettable boulevards and staircases designed by Michelangelo, staircases constructed on the pattern of downward gliding waters and as they descend widely giving birth to step out of step as if it were wave out of wave. Through such impressions one gathers oneself, wins oneself back from the exacting multiplicity which speaks and chatters there how talkative it is, and one slowly learns to recognise the very few things in which something eternal endures, that one can love, and something solitary that one can gently take part in. I'm still living in the city, on the capital, not far from the most beautiful equestrian statue that has come down to us from Roman art, the statue of Marcus Aurelius. But in a few weeks I will move into a quiet, simple room, an old summer house which lies lost deep in a large park, hidden from the city, from its noises and incidents. There I will live all winter and enjoy the great silence from which I expect the gift of happy, work-filled hours. From there, where I will be more at home, I will write you a longer letter in which I will say something more about what you wrote me. Today I just need to tell you, and perhaps I'm wrong not to have done this sooner, that the book you sent me, you said in your letter that it contained some works of yours, hasn't arrived. Was it sent back to you? Perhaps from Worpsfeder? They will not forward packages to foreign countries. This is the most hopeful possibility and I would be glad to have it confirmed. I do hope that the package hasn't been lost. Unfortunately, the Italian mail service being what it is, that would not be anything unusual. I would have been glad to have this book, as I am to have anything that comes from you. And any poems that have arisen in the meantime, I will always, if you entrust them to me, read and read again and experience as well and as sincerely as I can with greetings and good wishes yours Rainer Maria Rilke and that's the fifth of ten letters which Rilke wrote to a young poet <laughs>